poets and intellectuals of this time, the innovative minds, the intelligentsia, those that are breaking down the barriers and choosing a bohemian existence, escaping from dreary suburban ideals and materialistic death traps. Where are these engaging people? The risk takers, the revolutionaries, those living apart from this big unrest, those escaping the sterility of corporate junkies who get high on materialistic consumption. Welcome to the Bohemian Beat. We will journey beyond the horizon and find the artists living on the edge, going down into the murky waters of their very existence, where these brave souls have re-emerged with art that is challenging, original and brutal. You have tuned into the Bohemian Beat. I'm ready with you until the end of the hour. Today is the final of a four-part series, Gothic Tales, focusing on the year 1816, when Frankenstein and the vampire were conceived. And we will settle in with a track by the Sisters of Mercy called Lucretia, My Reflection, loosely based on the femme fatale Lucrezio Borgio, who lived between 1480 and 1519. English Romantic poet Lord Byron, upon reading some of Lucrezia's love letters at the Ambrosian Library of Milan in 1816, describes them as the prettiest love letters in the world. He was driven to steal a lock of her hair from the cabinet, declaring the prettiest and fairest imaginable.
that was the Sisters of Mercy with Lucretia, my reflection. In 1816, Lord Byron settled at the Villa Diodati by Lake Geneva in Switzerland with his personal physician, John Polidori. There, Byron befriended the poet Percy Bysshe Shelley and Shelley's future wife, Mary Godwin. He was also joined by Mary's stepsister, Claire Clermont, with whom he had an affair in London. The bad weather kept the group indoors, which produced the hugely influential novel Frankenstein by Mary Shelley and The Vampire by John Polidori. One evening, Byron read verses from Samuel Taylor Coleridge's poem, Christabel, to the group, in which Percy Shelley, clearly affected by the claustrophobic environment and the hypnotic power of Byron's reading of the poem, fled the room screaming, apparently horrified. This long poem tells the story of a young maiden, Christabel, who meets a woman, Geraldine, who turns out to be a vampire that seeks both the spiritual and physical possession of the beautiful and innocent Christabel. This is an excerpt from the beginning of Christabel by Samuel Taylor Coleridge. Tis the middle of night by the castle clock, and the owls have awakened the crowing cock. To wit, to who? And hark again, the crowing cock, how drowsily it crew. Sir Leoline, the baron rich, hath a toothless mastiff bitch. From her kennel beneath the rock she maketh answer to the clock. Four for the quarters, and twelve for the hour, ever and aye by shine and shower. Sixteen short howls, not over loud. Some say she sees my lady's shroud. Is the night chilly and dark? The night is chilly, but not dark. The thin grey cloud is spread on high. It covers, but not hides the sky. The moon is behind and at the full, and yet she looks both small and dull. The night is chill, the cloud is grey. Tis a month before the month of May, and the spring comes slowly up this way. The lovely Lady Christabel, whom her father loves so well. What makes her in the woods so late, a furlong from the castle gate? She had dreams all yesternight of her own betrothed night, and she in the midnight wood will pray for the wheel of her lover that's far away. She stole along, she nothing spoke. The sighs she heaved were soft and low and naught was green upon the oak, but moss and rarest mistletoe. She kneels beneath the huge oak tree, and in silence prayeth she. The lady sprang up suddenly, the lovely Lady Christabel. It moaned as near as near can be, but what it is she cannot tell. On the other side it seems to be of the huge, broad-breasted old oak tree, the night is chill, the forest bare. Is it the wind that moaneth bleak? There is not wind enough in the air to move away the ringlet curl from the lovely lady's cheek. There is not wind enough to twirl the one red leaf, the last of its clan, that dances as often as dance it can, hanging so light and hanging so high on the topmost twig that looks up at the sky. Hush, beating heart of Christabel, Jesu, Maria, shield her well. She folded her arms beneath her cloak and stole to the other side of the oak. 
What sees she there? There she sees a damsel bright, dressed in a silken robe of white, that shadowy in the moonlight shone. The neck that made that white robe one, her stately neck and arms were bare. Her blue-veined feet unsandaled were, and wildly glittered here and there the gems entangled in her hair. I guessed was frightful there to see a lady so richly clad as she, beautiful exceedingly. Mary, mother, save me now. since 2007 across a community radio network. We just heard Incubus Succubus with Heart of Lilith and before that Yvonne Bonami reading an excerpt from Christabel by English romantic poet Samuel Taylor Coleridge. Coleridge commented in a letter on the 10th of April 1816 that Lord Byron's face was so beautiful, a countenance I scarcely ever saw, and his eyes the open portals of the sun, things of light and for light. 
Lord Byron was one of the second generation romantic poets. He fused high romance with a love of nature and tragic loss. He virtually invented the idea of romantic irony, or the idea of the hero as a tragic figure who was born to desire a transcendence that can never be achieved. The next generation of romantic poets also included Percy Bysshe Shelley and John Keats. They criticised Wordsworth and Coleridge for giving up on the ideals of the French Revolution. Byron and Shelley especially admired the ideal of ancient Greek democracy, and Byron died participating in the fight for Greek independence. The following poem, On This Day I Complete My 36th Year, by Lord Byron, was written on his birthday in 1824, just months before he died in Greece. Tis time this heart should be unmoved, since others it hath ceased to move. Yet though I cannot be beloved, me love, my days are in the yellow leaf. The flowers and fruits of love are gone. The worm, the canker and the grief are mine alone. The fire that on my bosom preys is lone as some volcanic isle. No torch is kindled at its blaze. A funeral pile. The hope, the fear, the zealous care, the exalted portion of the pain and power of love. I cannot share but wear the chain. But tis not thus and tis not here such thoughts should shake my soul, nor now where glory decks the hero's beer or binds his brow. The sword, the banner, and the field, glory and Greece around me see. The Spartan born upon his shield was not more free. Greece, she is awake. Awake my spirit. Think through whom thy lifeblood tracks its parent lake and then strike home. Tread those reviving passions down, unworthy manhood. Unto thee indifferent should the smile or frown of beauty be. If thou regrets thy youth, why live? The land of honorable death is here. Up to the field and give away thy breath. Seek out, less often sought than found, a soldier's grave. For thee the best. Then look around, and choose thy ground, and take thy rest. I don't care for all the wealth in the whole wide world.
don't need a magic power to live forever throughout time. Or be a genius more creative than all of history's greatest minds. I don't dream of all the pleasures heaven holds for me. Sort of fire and soft white wings. I'll tell you what it is I need to turn this spark into a fire. Come close and hold me tighter still. It's you, my one desire. Desire. And before that, Tyrone Power reading a poem by Lord Byron called On This Day I Complete My 36th Year. Mary Shelley's reputation was dwarfed by both her friend, Lord Byron, and her husband, Percy Bysshe Shelley. She has described that summer in Switzerland as the moment when I stepped out from childhood into life. It was during this time she began the famous gothic horror novel Frankenstein. Throughout her life, Mary remained a political radical. Her works often argue that cooperation and sympathy, particularly as practiced by women in the family, were the ways to reform civil society. This view was a direct challenge to the individualistic romantic ethos promoted by Percy Shelley and the Enlightenment political theories articulated by her father, William Godwin. Mary believed in the Enlightenment idea that people could improve society through the responsible exercise of political power, but she feared that the irresponsible exercise of power would lead to chaos. Her works generally criticised the way 18th century thinkers, such as her parents, believed such change could be brought about. The creature in Frankenstein, for example, reads books associated with radical ideals, but the education he gains from them is ultimately useless. Mary's works reveal her as less optimistic than Godwin and her feminist mother, Mary Wollstonecraft. She lacks faith in Godwin's theory that humanity could eventually be perfected. The following piece is from Mary Shelley's novel Frankenstein. In this scene, the mad scientist Victor Frankenstein recalls the night he lost everything. 
Victor breaks his promise to the monster that he would create him a female monster companion. Instead, he sets fire to his lab with her within. The monster, shocked and horrified, is unable to rescue his companion from the fire, becomes enraged and runs to Victor's house to exact his revenge. I knew then what was in his mind as he raced through the forest in front of me. The blazing shack was a beacon of light, and I saw his huge, misshapen form outdistance me, far outdistance me. He was faster than I, taller than I, and covered more territory. Racing, running blindly through the forest, I reached my home. The door of my home was flung open. Henry, mutilated and torn, stumbled blindly toward me. Victor, the monster. Henry, Henry, what? I, I tried to, Victor, I... Henry, you. Beth. Beth, hello. Upstairs. Beth! Beth, I'm coming, darling, I'm coming. I'm coming upstairs. I'm coming, darling, I'm coming. If you kill her, I'll... Beth! Beth. Beth, oh, my darling. My darling. Oh, Beth, no. No. Both you and Henry. Both dead. You too are alone, creator. Yes. Both of them were dead. All my dear ones gone from me now. And I'm alone. The wind howling outside my window is my only companion. All else is quiet as I sit by my window, writing this document. I am dying of loneliness and fear. Shunned by the world, hated by everyone. I know I am waiting only for the monster's return. And he, having eluded the world, will return when I've suffered... My full share of misery, as he has suffered his. Me. You were 
Before that, an excerpt from Frankenstein by Mary Shelley, performed by the Weird Circle. In the novel, the scientist Victor Frankenstein, playing God, resembles Satan from John Milton's epic poem Paradise Lost, published in 1667, in which Satan is an archangel punished for his vanity, arrogance and thirst for forbidden knowledge. Like him, Victor attempts to take over God's role as creator and master of the universe. The Romantics interpreted Milton's account of the biblical story of Genesis as a celebration of Satan, the rebellious hero who defies the power of God. They regarded Satan not as the embodiment of evil, but as a victim of the tyrannical power of the establishment. However, Mary Shelley does not present Victor's acts as positive or admirable. Victor's intellectual curiosity and ambition does not add any scientific advancement or social progress. This next piece is an excerpt from Paradise Lost, Book One, by John Milton. Princes, potentates, warriors, the flower of heaven, once yours, now lost. If such astonishment as this can seize eternal spirits. Or have you chosen this place after the toil of battle to repose your wearied virtue for the ease you find to slumber here as in the veils of heaven? Or in this abject posture have you sworn to adore the conqueror who now beholds cherub and seraph rowling in the flood with scattered arms and ensigns, till anon his swift pursuers from heaven's gates discern the advantage and descending tread us down thus drooping, or with linked thunderbolts transfix us to the bottom of this gulf. Awake, arise, or 
be forever fallen.
But he ain't what he seems You'll see him in your head on a TV screen Hey buddy, I'm warning you to turn it off He's a ghost, he's a god, he's a man, he's a guru You're one microscopic cog in his catastrophic plan Designed and directed by his red right hand And we just heard Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds with Red Right Hand. And before that, Welsh poet Dylan Thomas reading an extract from Paradise Lost, Book One, by English poet John Milton. And now for the final act of Season One of our very modern-day gothic radio play called Grooming, where literary mystery is unravelling in the little town of Stokersville. Senior Constable Mavis Brady and Constable Mal Jones continue to look for the missing body taken from the morgue. Meanwhile, the amnesic woman found in the graveyard has been identified, yet she died three years ago. This is Episode 5 of Grooming. Police! Police! Mavis, it's pretty obvious nobody's home. Nobody who wants to talk to us, anyway. No shortage of security cameras, though. You suggesting somebody's in there watching us? Oh, I don't know. We can't just break in. Yeah, yeah, okay. Let's go check out what's happening at the morgue. Died three years ago? (laughs) Jack, have you been smoking that wacky... Hang on, Frank. Constable, let me get this straight. Are you saying our woman has been identified? Yes, Inspector. By whom? Her mother. Look, this is getting ridiculous. We've got a very much alive woman who can't even tell us who she is or where she comes from, and now somebody thinks she looks like her daughter who died three years ago? Well, yes. What's the mother's name? Eileen Wollstonecraft. Can you talk to her? I did. She sounds pretty convincing. Geez, you're gullible, Jack. But let's go see this Eileen. She's not a local. Where does she live? Nowhere else. Very funny, not. (laughs) No, really. It's a place in Tasmania. What? Here you go. Courtesy of Google Earth. Yes, I've heard of it. In the northwest, near Sheffield. And look, here's a place called Paradise. Yes, yes. And this woman, the the mother, you've got her phone number? Yep. Constable Mitchell, set up a conference call. I'll go and talk to our woman. But... Okay. so forensics found lots of fingerprints. Margaret's and... And mine. Well, yes. Of course, nobody wears latex gloves in the office, but I... Mr Cargill, nobody's suggesting. Anyway, what about all the other prints? Well, it's like I said before. The loading bay where the deliveries happen is all basic lock and key stuff. And Margaret's diary lists each one under the name of the deceased. Well... They can hardly sign themselves in. Uh, I think Senior Constable Brady means rather than under the name of the driver. Yes, of course. Sorry. But I mean, the drivers do sign their own names. And all we have to do is decipher their handwriting. What the hell does that say? Uh, looks like... Void? That would be Vlad. Mr Florescu. Where is it? 
Yes, that's right. It was two days ago. And here, where the O'Malley body was signed in, is that PG? Mm, don't know that one. One of the Ambos, I guess. Hello, Inspector Campbell, is it? Yes. Thanks, Mrs. Wollstonecraft. I'm here with Sergeant Lawson and Constable Mitchell, and the woman you think is your daughter. I don't think it, dear. I know it. But... Well, yes. But didn't your daughter die three years ago? Yes. So she was buried in Tasmania? At Claude Road. Buried under a road? Ah. Uh... Uh, that's actually the name of a village, isn't it? Yes. So when somebody showed you this picture of your daughter on social media... What does that mean? It was my son. Your son showed you the picture? Yes. And is your son with you now? No, he's in paradise. Oh, I'm very sorry to hear that. Uh, no. He loves it there. Sarge, remember I told you? So, Mrs Wollstonecraft, you saw it on your son's computer? His phone, he's got one of those flash mobile things. So how did you recognise her? I'd know that walk anywhere. But... Frank! Mrs Wollstonecraft, would you like to speak to your daughter now? Yes, of course. Hello, Lizzie, darling. Who are you? It's Mum, dear. Sorry, I sound a bit croaky. But you don't sound a day older. Look, I'm sorry, but I have no idea who you are. Inspector, do we really Mrs have... Wollstonecraft, is there anything apart from Lizzie's voice or walk that would identify her? You mean the mark on her neck? Aye. Ah, what do you mean? On her back. Above her left shoulder blade. Just a moment. Frank? Come on, Sarge. Let's leave the room while the ladies... Uh, sure, sure. You want me to get undressed? No, no. Of, of course not. But if you could just undo the top button of your blouse... Can you see it? And could you just brush your hair away from... It's there, isn't it? It looks like a birthmark. In the shape of a butterfly? Yes. Told you. Mavis, do we really have to sit here waiting for... For what exactly? Just a few more minutes. The house is in darkness. We've knocked on the door twice. It's getting late. Drink your coffee. But we need to get back to the station to follow up on that list of people with access to the... I'm already doing it. We can eliminate a couple of these names. That Mr Florescu seemed like a nice old bloke on the phone. Vlad the hearse driver? What's that accent? It's Romanian, Senior Constable. <laughs> so what's this about somebody identifying our woman? Her story keeps getting crazier by the minute. Jack reckons he spoke to her mother. She's never mentioned her mother. Or anybody else from her past. Uh, hang on. What's this? Did that person just come out of number 27? I think he did. Let's check him out. G'day, officer. Oh, g'day. Small world. Yeah. The Doof. Who's your boss? Sergeant Lawson, you mean? Yeah, whatever. Bit of a dickhead, is he? Uh, anyway, uh, was the woman okay? The OD? Yeah, she was fine. Sorry, look, I'm Constable Jones, and this is... I'm Senior Constable Brady. You live around here? I'm Aussie. And no, I don't. Just passing? Sorry? Do you have any ID on you? As a matter of fact, no, I don't. Oscar Sachs, I'm in the book. And if there's nothing more, 
I'm late for a meeting. No problem. Okay. Hmm. We should follow him. Mavis, we've got to find that body. Stoker Vale Police, Sergeant Lawson. Oh, Frank. Uh, Sergeant Lawson. It's Graham Cogill. In the dead centre of town? Um... What are you blokes done with that dead Irishman? Oh, well, it's... Actually, I was hoping to speak to Kath, um, Inspector Campbell. But I think Constables Brady and Jones are working hard to... Yeah, well, anyway, while you're there, what is this cryogenics business? The inspector was talking about it. Is there anything in it? Well, the principal thinking behind cryonics is to freeze the body immediately after death. And bring it back to life? Well, no, not necessarily. The theory is that if and when a cure is found for what the person died of... You unfreeze it and it's as good as new. Well, not quite as easily as that. The laws of entropy still apply. Yeah, right. They haven't been repealed yet. <laughs> uh, yeah, right. I'll put you through the inspector. Hello? Coroner for you, Inspector. Graham? Oh, Inspector. There's nobody else listening, is there? What? No. Why? Oh, well, I don't know. Maybe I'm getting paranoid. It doesn't mean they aren't after you. <laughs> what have you been telling Frank? What? About freezing bodies. Oh, that. I was just wondering why somebody would steal another body in order to try to... Kath, you can't go filling Frank's head with that 19th century stuff. And by the way, what did you say to Mavis about me and practical jokes? <laughs> well, I might have mentioned that night you hid that skeleton in the Dean's closet. <laughs> it wasn't the only one there either. But really, Kath, that was all a long time ago and I'm not sure it helps. Sorry. Anyway, the reason I'm calling is... And look, I know I could be out of line. Go on, Graham. Well, it's not my place to say, but I remember something about one of the paramedics. Sorry, Sarge. I thought I had it organised, but it all happened before I realised. Yeah, it's OK. But you're saying this Skype thing was working? Yeah, for a couple of minutes. But then the son took his phone with him and... But Elizabeth and Eileen actually saw each other? If that's who they are... Thank you, Jack. May sanity prevail. Let's look at the evidence. There's no reason to believe... But, Constable Mitchell, sorry, but I need to be clear on this. When our woman, the woman we are holding, and the woman in Tasmania actually saw each other... Same as on the phone. No reaction from the woman. Nothing. But the Tasmanian lady seemed more convinced than ever. Hmm. Anyway, thanks for trying. No prob. Oh, here's that picture you wanted of that birthmark. I'll get back to the front desk. See what I mean, Frank? It is, isn't it? Well, no, frankly. I mean, OK, you could say it looks like a butterfly, but to me it looks like a pair of... It's more than a coincidence. But the daughter's supposed to be dead. D-E-A... Supposed to be. There could be another explanation. It wouldn't be the first time in history. What about the legend of... Inspector, can we please lay off the supernatural bullshit? Is that what you call it, Frank? And what do you call it when you and Raylene line up on Sunday for a priest to feed you a bit of bread that's supposed to be the body of... Jesus, Kath. I mean, Inspector. Look, can we please at least just leave the wife out of this? Sure. Sorry, Frank. 
But you get my point. See, I think my job is to catch criminals. Punishment follows guilt, you mean? Eh? That's what it says on your badge. Oh, well, yeah. I didn't do Latin at school, but... You're a good policeman, Frank. But sometimes, to find the answers, we have to empathise with victims. Honey attracts more ants than vinegar. Yeah, yeah. Yes, Inspector, you're right. Anyway, I've made my decision. We're taking our woman to Tasmania. What? No way! Trousers overpassed If tenderness and truth Could last or live Whilst all While feelings keep Some mortal slumber Dark and deep I shouldn't weep I shouldn't weep If it were enough to feel To see your soft eyes gaze at me and dream the rest and burn and be the secret food of fires unseen I should not weep I should not weep I should not to the Bohemian Beat and we just heard our theme music by Gian and Simon I Should Not Weep based on a poem by Percy Bysshe Shelley and before that episode 5 of the radio play Grooming written and produced by Paul Goodwin starring Suze as woman, Yasser as Constable Mal Jones, Lydia as Senior Constable Mavis Brady Paul as Sergeant Frank Lawson Mitch as Probationary Constable Jack Mitchell 
Alistair as coroner, Graham Cargill, Andy as ambulance officer, Oscar Sachs, Carmel as Eileen Wollstonecraft, and me, Riddy, as Inspector Kath Campbell. A special thanks to Alex and SAE Byron Bay for the audio recordings and use of the studio space. Well, we hope you've enjoyed the first season of our radio play, Grooming. If you have missed any episodes, you can check it out on the Bohemian Beat website, thebohemianbeat.com. And don't forget to drop us a line. Well, that is all we have time for today. The Bohemian Beat will be back next week. Same beat time, same Bohemian frequency for more. We will end with a track from the Crew Shadows called Sympathy for Tomorrow. Thank you for joining me on the Bohemian Beat. I'm ready.
Light like hope to mortals given, but their red orbs without being to thy will. 